Good morning. It's good to uh, see you all here today. And for those of you visiting with us, welcome. We are so glad to have you with us, whether uh, you're just in town for the weekend or, or whether you're visiting uh, to check out FBC. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. I'm not going to tell you where we're going to turn yet. Um, well, I guess the surprise is ruined, huh? Uh, so uh, normally we would be continuing on in the book of Matthew, uh, but God's providence had other things in mind. Uh, I had the privilege this past week of uh, going out to the other side of Nevada to uh, lead music and to do some teaching at a youth group camp uh, that was uh, put on for students in some churches in Fallon. And it was a, a, a really cool thing to see churches in northern Nevada partnering together right, for the sake of the kingdom of God. It was just um, a wonderful time uh, just to be there with brothers from other churches and to watch um, how God has gifted uh, men in Fallon, right, to bring the gospel to, uh, to those students. And uh, it was very, very uh, good time. Uh, but with all that was going on there, there was not much time to continue on in Matthew. So this morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And this will tie into a lot of what we've been seeing in the book of Matthew uh, regarding faith. We've been looking at that the past couple weeks with the centurion and the leper, both of whom had faith in Christ. So the title of this morning's message is The Curse of Works and the Gift of Faith. Now, 505 years ago, October 31st, 1517, it was a normal morning in Germany. The merchants were doing business as usual. Church bells were ringing. Children were playing in the streets. Livestock were pulling carts. And a short, stocky monk walked up the steps of the local cathedral, hammer in hand, and just hoping to start a conversation, nailed a long piece of paper to the door of that cathedral. Unbeknownst to Martin Luther, that piece of paper would be the spark of what we call the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther's 95 theses were mainly concerned with the issue of indulgences. Uh, this was a major problem in the time. An indulgence is something that you would buy from the Roman Catholic Church so that your loved ones would spend less time suffering for their sins in purgatory. Uh, just to give you an example of really what the situation was like, we have jingles for, for things today, right, Folgers? The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, right? Uh, and there was a jingle for indulgences. One, one particular man was notorious, his name was Johann Tetzel, and his jingle uh, went something like this, another coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. They were marketing indulgences, and, and Martin Luther had a major problem with this, and, and rightly so. But it, it wouldn't be long before the discussion, the main issue of the Protestant Reformation changed from indulgences to justification, the question of how a person becomes righteous before God, the question of how a person is saved, that ultimately became the central concern of the Reformation. Is it by works or is it by faith? Now, we're here 505 years later. Uh, quite a ways away from the Reformation, but even though that's the case, this question of justification is not an outdated one. Uh, we don't need to uh, just kick back and coast simply because the Reformers did all the work, no. Brothers and sisters, the natural tendency for human <coughs> beings in any place at any time is to try to work our way to heaven. It's what sin has wired us to do. So the question is still relevant today. How does a person become justified? And as we'll see this morning from Paul's words in Galatians, right standing before God cannot come from our works. It is impossible 
but it is only through faith in the work of Christ. So if you have not already, turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. 10 through 14. The Apostle Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let us pray as we come to God's word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us scripture as our final, our first and last authority. Lord, that as we consider the question of how a person becomes righteous in your sight, that your word speaks so clearly to it. Lord, so that we might not have any confusion, but that we might ultimately, Lord, have faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we look at this text, uh, we pray for your help. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word and help us not just to understand it, but Lord, to live in light of it. Lord, I pray for your help as I proclaim your word this morning. Uh, Lord, this is your word, not mine. So help me to be faithful to your text, to the text of Scripture, and to preach in such a way that is clear and helpful for your people and glorifying to you. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we are parachuting a little bit into the middle of the book of Galatians, so just to provide a a bit of context for you. uh, In Galatians chapter 1, Paul describes the importance of holding to the truth of the gospel. The same gospel that the Galatians first heard from Paul or the other apostles and not turning away from it. Paul also talks about his own experience with the grace of God, how he became a Christian uh, instead of somebody who persecuted Christians. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes how he was sent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. uh, And he also describes this conflict that he had with the apostle Peter about forcing Gentile Christians to live according to the Jewish law. And it's from there that Paul kind of springboards, if you will, to the issue of justification and how it's not through works of the law, but by faith that a person is made righteous before God. Chapter 3, where we'll be at this morning, begins with Paul addressing false teachers that had begun influencing the Galatians. They were called Judaizers, uh, and their whole agenda was to come to the Galatians and say, hey, yeah, if you want to really be a Christian, if you want to really be saved, well, then you still need to obey these works of the law. If you're not circumcised, if you're not keeping kosher, if you're not doing these things, well, yeah, faith in Christ is really important, but you need to add these things in there too. And Paul starts addressing these false teachers who had begun introducing works of the law to the gospel. And our text this morning continues this confrontation. Our first point for this morning in verse 10 is justification by works is cursed. Justification by works is cursed. Paul tells us this in verse 10. He starts off with a very strong statement. He says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, all means all, without exception. Every single person who is relying on 
the law is under a curse. Now, we might be tempted to think that Paul's critiquing good works here. Okay, that's not the case. Paul is not saying there's something wrong with obeying the law. Paul's issue that he's really attacking here is, is the same one that Martin Luther had. It's reliance upon keeping the law, reliance upon doing the works of the law to be saved, to receive God's grace, to earn God's grace by trying to do the law, trusting your works to bring you to heaven, in other words. That's really what Paul is targeting here. We might also be tempted to think that Paul is saying that uh, there, there's something wrong with God's law. Why would, why would God's law bring us under a curse, right? Is there something wrong with the law, something at fault with the law that it cannot save us? No, that's not the case either. You know, Paul tells us in his other writings, Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that God's law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Right? The law is a good thing. The law is not the problem. It's not the law's fault that relying upon the law puts us under a curse. Paul's point here in verse 10 is the law cannot save us. Obeying the law cannot save us. The problem is not with good works. The problem is not with the law itself. The problem is with us. The problem is with our tendency to think that we can gain God's grace and love by obeying the very law that just reveals our sinfulness whenever we break it. And as Paul says, there is a curse that comes upon everyone who breaks God's law. And when Paul talks about this curse, he's not talking about a magic spell. He's not talking about something superstitious. He's not talking about voodoo. It's nothing like that. No, the curse here is the legal condemnation of God upon sin, the judgment and wrath of God upon sin, the punishment that sin deserves. That's what Paul means when he says all who rely on works are under a curse. And Paul quotes in verse 10 from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Let's turn there briefly for a moment. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. This verse comes at the end of the book of Deuteronomy as the people of Israel have just heard the entire law of God read to them. They're preparing to enter the promised land. Chapter 27, chapter 27, verse 26. And the people of Israel, having heard the law read to them, would have recited what we see in verse 26 together. Now here is what they would have said. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Right? God's uh, word here in the Old Testament is what Paul is citing in the New Testament. Paul's not making up this idea of a curse, of judgment for law-breaking. This has been the standard of God's law forever, for eternity, we could say. Now, it's probably helpful to ask at this point, uh, what are we talking about when we say God's law? Okay, that's something that we uh, may need to kind of clarify a little bit. The law of Moses had 613 commandments, right? We find that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy excuse me, and Numbers. 613 commandments that were given to the nation of Israel for them to do. Uh, and the Judaizers that Paul is engaging with here are trying to bring those commandments and put them on the shoulders of these Gentile Christians. Uh, that's specifically what Paul is getting at here. That's specifically in context what he's referring to. But does that mean this doesn't apply to us? Well, that would not be the case. It does apply to us, even if we are not under the Mosaic law. Let's boil it down to the Ten Commandments, which we call the moral law. 
the Ten Commandments represent the moral law that God has written on the heart of every single person, Jew or Gentile, current, past, future. Every human being has the moral law of God written in their heart, and we find that reflected in the Ten Commandments. So you and I still have a law that's relevant to us, right? Just as, just as people, as non-Jewish people. We're still accountable to those Ten Commandments. When we look at verse 10 and we see that all who rely on works of law are under a curse, we see that those who try to use law-keeping as the way to be saved are accountable to how much of God's law? All of it, right? As much as they've been given. And this isn't just quantity, right? Yeah, sure, you manage to keep the commands, but it's also quality. They must be kept perfectly. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing. So if we just take the Ten Commandments for a second and just think about that, uh, if you ask yourself, have I kept the Ten Commandments, think to yourself what your answer would be. You, you might think, well, I haven't really murdered anybody. Right? I haven't committed adultery. Um, maybe I stole some things when I was younger. Those are the big ones, right? The scary ones, the murder, murder, adultery, so on and so forth. But if you, if you just view the law that way, well, I... I yeah, maybe I stole something when I was younger. I've lied here or there, but I have never committed homicide. You're actually lowering the standard of the law. Let's just start with the first commandment, right? God says you shall have no other gods besides me. We could boil down the first four commandments to, to this right here. What Jesus says is the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, none of us here could say that we've done that, right? Maybe, maybe with... 10% of our heart, mind, soul, and strength one day, maybe 15% another day, but none of us are giving 100% 100% of the time, right? So we're already breaking the first command, right? We haven't even gotten to the other nine. And yet, what James tells us is that to fail in one of God's command is enough to make us a transgressor of the law. Again, God does not grade on a curve. Look at James chapter 2 with me, verses 10 and 11. And we'll see what James says to us here. James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. James reveals to us here what the standard of God's law is. It is perfection. James writes, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Right? We could take any commands, right? Okay, you haven't murdered, but have you lied, right? And Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 5, even takes these commands and brings them down to our heart. Okay, you've never killed somebody with your hands, but if you've hated somebody in your heart, Jesus says, well, that's a murderous heart, and God judges it accordingly. So the way that we keep God's law in our heart is actually considered as well. When we look at the law at that level, it should become abundantly clear. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Breaking one of God's laws, even if you keep the rest perfectly, is sufficient to make any one of us a transgressor of God's law and under a curse, under a punishment. You need to ask yourself, are you relying on your good works, on your idea of law-keeping to make you right before God to get you into heaven? Now, let's dig in a little deeper here, right? Because I think for many of us, we would have a profession of faith that says, I trust in Christ. I'm a Christian. 
But there's a danger sometimes where even when we make that profession with our lips, the way that we actually live and relate to God reveals otherwise, right? We, we, we think we're trusting Christ, but then we're maybe adding a little bit in there, right? Christ did 95% of the work, but I've got this other five that I have to do, right? And then God will really love me. Are you relying on good works to earn God's grace, even a fraction of God's grace? It's a question that we need to ask because the stakes of that are high. If you're trusting in yourself to get to heaven, Paul says that you're under a curse. It's not a good place to be. And this leads us to our next point here. Justification comes by faith, not by law. Justification comes by faith and not by law. Based on what Paul just said in verse 10, what we see in verse 11 should not surprise us. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Right? If, if relying on the law just brings you under a curse, that's not going to make you righteous before God. That's what Paul says. It's impossible. Now, I've used this word justification a number of times today uh, already, um, and I realize some of you may be familiar with it. Some of you might not. This might be a new term. So, Let's define this term, and it's important that we do because how we understand justification actually reveals how we understand the gospel. Justification is the heart of the gospel, so if we get that wrong, everything else is going to be out of whack too. What is justification? I'm going to give you two definitions here. One is like the up here definition, and then like the second one is the one for the rest of us, right? For us normal people. James Buchanan in his book, The Doctrine of Justification, defines justification as a legal or forensic term and is used in Scripture to denote the acceptance of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. Okay? And, and helpfully, he boils it down for us even more. Justification is the acceptance of a sinner as righteous in the sight of God. That's worth writing down if you have a pen and paper. Justification is the acceptance of a sinner as righteous in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, be able to define justification because that is the heart of the gospel. So at the core, when Paul says that nobody's justified by keeping the law, he means that nobody will be found righteous in God's sight. Nobody will be accepted by God as righteous on the basis of how well they kept the law. And there's a couple reasons for this. First, the law is not meant to justify us. It's meant to give us knowledge of our sinfulness. The law reveals our inability to keep the law. Uh, this is what Paul means in Romans 7, verse 7, when he writes it, If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Right? Uh, we see this in human nature all the time, especially in children. Right? We say, hey, don't do this. And all of a sudden, it becomes irresistible. Right? Uh, they can hold out for a couple minutes, but then they're jumping in that mud puddle. Right? Or they're eating the cookie dough. Right? Or whatever it is. But that's human nature. That doesn't stop when we become adults, too. The law functions as a standard by which we are measured against. It reveals God's holiness, His righteousness. And when we compare ourselves to it, we become aware of how often we fail. Uh, Reformed theologians have often called this the first use of the law. It reveals to us our sin in light of God's righteous standard. Okay? So in other words, the law just shows us how sinful we are, not how, uh, how much closer we can get to heaven. And the second reason why nobody can be justified by the law, uh, Paul gives us in verse 12, is that the law is not of faith. The law cannot justify because God has not given it to us to do so. Okay? Before Adam fell, sure, if Adam had obeyed God perfectly, would he have been 
counted as righteous? Yep, for sure. But we don't live there anymore, right? That's not where we're at. Look what Paul says in the verse, uh, in the second half of verse 12. He says, the one who does them shall live by them. Right? The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul doesn't say the one who obeys the law shall be justified. He doesn't say the righteous shall live by law. He doesn't say the, uh, the law keepers will receive eternal life by their works. No, he says it's by faith, by faith alone. Faith is the instrument of our justification. The law is not. After the fall, the law could never justify us because we are corrupted, right? We have sinful natures. We can't keep it to the degree that God requires. No, Paul tells us it is by faith that we receive justification. That is God's design. Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4 in this verse, and uh, he, he quotes that same verse at the beginning of Romans, where he talks about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And those two verses in Romans were what God used to convert Martin Luther. To show Martin Luther, salvation is not by penance, by doing works to try to appease an angry God. Salvation is by faith, by faith. It's not the law keepers who are declared righteous, but it is those who have faith. And we read here that those who have faith are declared righteous, and those who are declared righteous shall live. They stand in Christ on the day of God's judgment. Not judged based on their own works, but on the work of Christ. But in contrast, Paul tells us in verse 12, the law is not of faith. The law is, as he says, the one who does them shall live by them. The implication is the one who does not shall die by them. This is how the law works. If you're going to try to live by the law, if you're going to try to be found righteous by your own law keeping, then you must do all of the works of the law perfectly. God doesn't accept our best effort. Right? If we're going to be judged by works, it's all or nothing. Because God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a perfect God. Now, if you can keep the law perfectly, sure, you'll be, you'll be justified by your works. But when you fail, which is guaranteed, then you will die by the law. And that's why Paul says the law is not of faith. Works of the law put the responsibility 100% on whose shoulders? Ours, right? Ours. We have to accomplish our own justification. We have to make ourselves righteous before God if we're going to rely on works of the law. But faith, on the other hand, entrusts the responsibility 100% to another to accomplish it for you. Very big difference between those things, isn't there? The Puritan William Perkins describes how this reality really sets down the main difference between law and gospel. He says, the law promises life to him that performs perfect obedience. The gospel promises life to him that does nothing in the cause of salvation, but only believes in Christ. The law then requires the doing of salvation and the gospel believing and nothing else. Nothing else. But we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. We are not adding works to that. If we do, we are under a curse. And that's why Paul says the law is not a faith, because it's all about doing, not about believing. But faith is all about trusting the work of the one who can actually and has actually accomplished what you and I can't, Christ Jesus. 
And as we look at verse 13, our next point, that's exactly where Paul goes. He points our attention to the one in whom we must have faith. Our, our next point is Christ redeems us from the curse. Christ redeems us from the curse, verse 13. Now, up until we've gotten to verse 13, it's kind of bad news all the way down, right? The curse of the law is unbreakable by our own efforts because God is just and there's a righteous judgment for our sin. Uh, Martin Luther, while he was still a Roman Catholic monk, he was aware of this. He said, if that's all there is, then it's hopeless. Here's what he wrote prior to his conversion. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, in other words, he lived this perfect monastic life, right? Did all the things he was required to. Even though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction, right? By my, my attempts to gain his favor. And Martin Luther goes so far as to say that when he was a monk, he did not live. Indeed, he hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Luther had realized what the problem with trying to earn your salvation is. God justly punishes sin. Who can have hope if we're judged based on our own works, right? Luther was aware of his sinful state before God. And unfortunately for Luther, prior to his salvation, God's righteous wrath seemed to be the entire picture. That's all there was. Just do your best. Do these things. And Luther knew that would not satisfy a holy God. How could Luther, how could you and I be released from the curse of the law? How could we avoid the righteous judgment of God upon our sin? But in verse 13, hope comes to light. This is the turning point in the passage. Paul paints a picture of our redemption as he describes the work of Christ. Though we could not redeem ourselves from the curse of the law, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yes, there is a way out from under the law's curse, and it is through Christ. Now, Paul tells us that Christ redeems us. There's a couple different senses to this word, a couple different uses of this word redeem in the Bible. And the way that Paul uses it here means to obtain the freedom of a person by means of payment. Right? So think hostage situation. Uh, a person is taken captive and the only way they can be released is if money is paid. Well, that's kind of the analogy Paul is using here. Christ has redeemed us in this way. He has freed us from the curse of the law. Now, how does Christ do this? How does Christ redeem us? Well, it starts with his life. We look over just a page to Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5. We read that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sends his son, fully God, to take on flesh, a genuine human nature, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to be born under the law, right, as a member of the Jewish nation. Meaning that as a genuine human, Christ was accountable to keep the same law that you and I are. Of course, he had the addition of the, the Jewish commandments as well. But the moral law. Yet where we fail, Christ kept the law perfectly. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength 100%, 100% of the time. He loved his neighbor as himself, more than himself perhaps. 100%, 100% of the time. Christ perfectly obeyed the Father's will and the Father's law. 
this is how it's possible for us to be given His righteousness as a gift. Right? This is how God can justify sinners, by, by clothing us, if you will. Right? Putting on a, a jacket of Jesus' righteousness that covers our sin. And so that what, what we are seen as is righteous in Christ. Martin Luther called this righteousness given to us. An alien righteousness, not talking about E.T., right, but about a, a legal righteousness that is from outside of us. It's not ours. It's not something we earned. It's given to us as a gift. So Christ gives us the righteousness that he earned and takes our sin in our place. And this is the other side of the coin. This is the other side of Christ's redemption, his death. Not only did Christ live a perfect life in a true human nature, but he died in the place of sinners. And Paul says something in Galatians 3, verse 13, that's actually, um, it's a little offensive in some ways. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let's just sit here for a second. Didn't we just say Christ lived a perfect life? Yes, he did. That's what makes Paul's words here that much more Shocking. Christ, the perfect and holy Son of God, without blemish, without spot, without sin, stands in our place, bearing our sin. The Apostle Paul writes that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. And as Christians, that's a central part of what we believe, but Paul takes it a step further. Calvin writes that Paul did not say that Christ was cursed, but which is still more, that he was a curse intimating that the curse of all men was laid upon him. Sometimes we, we think of Christ on the cross and we just think about Christ taking our sins and, and, and dealing with them, which Christ does. But what we may not think about is what Paul says here. Christ doesn't just have our, our sins in this neat little box on the cross. right? And then they just like get thrown into the fire and they're gone. That's not what happened. Christ becomes the curse. Christ, in other words, uh, doesn't just bear the sin load of one person, right? Or, or, or he, does, he does bear the sins of all his people, but Christ becomes the curse himself. Christ as a man is looked upon by the Father as if he had committed those very sins in his human nature. That's horrifying to think about. You know, Christ isn't hanging on the cross paying just for white lies and stealing, you know, a couple nickels here and there. Christ designed for the most horrific of sins that we don't even like to talk about out loud. Christ becomes the cursed one, dying for the sins, all the sins of all his people. Not just the little struggles we might share in fellowship group, right? But the things that we are ashamed of. Christ bears that too. Christ dies not just for semi-bad people, but for monstrous people. That is the humility, the love, the amazing and shocking grace of the cross of Christ. Christ becomes a curse. And I love the two words that come after for us. For us. And who are we? We are the ones who are sinners. 
You're the ones who actually deserve the curse. The ones who deserve the punishment of God, rightly so. We were the enemies of Christ, weak, ungodly, dead in sin, and Christ became a curse for us. It is true. Friend, whether you're a Christian or not, I pray you would see yourself in those two words, for us. That you would realize that you were under a curse by works, and if not for the redemption that's in Christ, you would stay there. But Christ became a curse for us. If you're a Christian, these two little words should bring such peace to your soul. Because while they, they, they require us to acknowledge our sinful guilt, they also lead us to have joy and assurance that it's been dealt with. If you're not a Christian, I pray that those two little words, Christ became a curse for us, would bring you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ to save you. Have you ever wondered about Christ's love for you? Have you ever questioned if he could really love a person like you? If he really died for all of your sins, not just about 75% of them, right? But all of them, even the really bad ones that nobody maybe even knows about. Find assurance in knowing that Christ willingly and lovingly sacrificed himself and became a curse for us. He knew the ones he was dying for. He knew every one of their sins. He knew all that he was getting himself into. He knew the absolute comprehensiveness of what you and I have done. And the weight of that guilt that we even tried to deny sometimes and took it upon himself willingly on the cross. Christ knew he was dying a death reserved for the worst criminals. And he became a curse for us. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 here. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy briefly. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. In the law of Moses, it was written, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Paul's quoting from this passage. And under the old covenant, the most serious, the most horrifying, the most rebellious sins were the ones punishable by death. And, and what Deuteronomy describes is a, a, something of a cultural practice. Uh, the Israelites would use stoning to execute criminals. Right? They didn't crucify people, but what they would do after that execution is hang the body from a tree or, or place them on a stake. And this was a public sign that this individual and their sin was under the curse of God. It's very weighty stuff here. But this verse that Paul's quoting from is not talking about the method of execution so much as it is talking about the public display of a criminal as a sign of God's condemnation. And so when Christ dies as a curse for us, this wasn't a secret thing between the Father and the Son. Uh, this was a public display. Christ was crucified on a hill where the entire city could see him. 
The world spat upon Christ. They mocked him. They despised him as one who was cursed by God as he died on the cross. Yet those who behold him and in faith trust him to be the curse for them, dying in their place, to them he gives his righteousness as a gift. To those who believe upon Christ and him only, redemption from the curse of trying to work our way to heaven comes, and it comes freely for us, but at the greatest cost for him. Friends, do you believe and trust Christ to redeem you from the curse of the law? Do you trust him alone? Only he is able to do it. Only he could obey God's law perfectly, and only he could make satisfaction for our sin. Only he could uh, pay the price that we owed on the cross. Christ's life and death is the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan, the culmination of God's plan to save his people. Look at verse 14. We see here our last point. Christ brings us salvation through faith. Christ brings us salvation through faith. Paul says that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, our curse is removed and it is replaced with blessing. And nothing but blessing. Now that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, blessing follows. Paul describes two of the main blessings of our salvation here in verse 14. The first blessing is the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. Uh, Nearly 2,000 years before Christ's life and death, God appeared to Abraham, a seemingly random man in the desert, and God made him promises, one of which we find in Genesis 12, 3, where God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was a promise God made to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. And in this one promise to Abraham, so much is contained. This blessing is for all the families of the earth. It doesn't mean every married couple with kids or something like that, right? It's talking about every tribe, every people group. Not just Israelites, but all people, all nations, all tribes. This blessing that God promises to Abraham is for all kinds of people. Uh, But what ultimately is this blessing? We'll just look back a few verses to verse 7. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is this blessing for the Gentiles? It's justification by faith alone. That's the blessing Paul's talking about in verse 14. It's not to say God didn't ever justify Gentiles in the Old Testament, but God's primary dealing was with the nation of Israel. Though the salvation of the Gentiles was always in view for the future. But Christ's work on the cross in fulfilling the law and bearing its curse wasn't just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too, who according to Romans 2.15 still have the moral law of God written on their hearts. They still need redemption from the curse of works righteousness. And God's purpose in Christ is to redeem for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue a people that reflects his creative diversity. That was always God's plan. All human beings are traced back to Adam, and so it is right that God would redeem some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
It's a sign that he is fully uh, undoing and restoring that which Adam lost. And that's good news to the majority of you in this room who are not Jewish, right? Since the fall of Adam, God's intention was to redeem people that reflected all kinds of Adam's offspring. And with Christ's redemption, Paul says, the time had come. The mystery of the gospel is revealed. That gospel message, there is salvation in Christ alone for all people who believe, goes out. And, and through Paul, specifically to the Gentiles. And with the salvation that is now proclaimed to the Gentiles, with that justification by faith that comes to them by grace, there's another blessing that comes too, which we see in the second half of verse 14. God's Holy Spirit comes to all his people. With the removal of the curse through Christ's redemption, God pours out his spirit in a new and unique way at Pentecost. And Paul writes in verse 14 that we have now received the promised spirit through faith. Now God's spirit was always with his people, but at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God's people are now filled with the spirit. The spirit is no longer uh, with them, but in them, dwelling, residing in them is a permanent thing. We call this the indwelling of the Spirit. This is how God has made a new temple for himself. It's not of stones. It's not a building. It's a people. It's a people. And notice that Paul says that this Spirit is promised. This is something that had been foretold by the Old Testament prophets. Listen to what Isaiah says. In Isaiah 44, 3-5. Isaiah says, I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Isaiah 44, 3-5. This is a promise of God uh, to his people that he is going to make a new covenant people for himself not marked by physical circumcision, like under the Old Covenant, but marked by the Holy Spirit indwelling in them as a seal of their faith in Christ. The person and work of Christ was not just a blip in history, but it was really the culmination of God's plan of redemption for sinners. Do you see your need to belong to that plan of redemption? Are you resting by faith in the finished work of Christ, enjoying the blessings of this salvation instead of the curse of the law? Or do you find, if you're honest with yourself, do you find yourself striving anxiously to finish the work yourself? Are you relying on your own works to save you? Or are you relying solely on the work of Christ and living, dying, and rising to redeem you from the curse of your own failure to obey God's law? Brothers and sisters, even though the Protestant Reformation happened almost 505 years ago, question of how we are saved, how we're justified before God is still an important one. When, when I was uh, at the camp, I had a chance to sit and talk with a student, and uh, the camp itself was on the five solas, right, which is really a great explanation of the gospel, right? Scripture alone is our authority. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, right? These 12 to 18-year-olds heard hours of teaching on that, right? It was awesome. Hours of discussion on that, right? It was awesome. Um, and purposely, right, throughout the week, uh, myself and the other people teaching emphasized, you are not saved by your works, right? Being a better Christian does not get you into heaven. And we had a chance to talk to a, a student, 
And we ask him, what was your biggest takeaway from this week, right? He goes, being a better Christian. You need to be a better Christian, right? And, and it, was, it was half funny because it was ironic, right? Uh, but then it was half sad, too. Humanity always gravitates towards working our way to heaven. That's our natural state. Whether you're a, an 11-year-old you know, junior high student or whether you're a, a 60-year-old uh, grown-up, humanity always gravitates towards working our way to heaven. That is our natural state. But God's law is an infinitely great ladder, and we are like a quadruple amputee. We can't even begin to work our way to righteousness before God. It's not going to happen. can't even get off the ground. But what Paul tells us here is that Christ comes and by grace picks us up, puts us on his back, and climbs that ladder for us. He redeems us. He was born for us. He died a curse for us. He rose triumphant for us, and he will return for us. So brothers and sisters, don't look to the law to save you. Sure, we do need to obey cheerfully the law of God as Christians as a response to our salvation. But works of the law will not save you. Look to Christ instead. Look to Christ instead. He is an all-sufficient redeemer. Through him we may be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gift of faith. Lord, what we earn for ourselves is nothing but condemnation. Lord, our best attempts to obey your law are stained with sin. And Lord, as a holy God, you cannot accept them. And so Lord, what an amazing thing that you would give us a gracious gift the gift of your son, the gift of his righteousness, the gift of being justified, of counted as righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of all that Christ has done. Lord, we thank you even that the faith you give us to trust Christ is a gift. We could never produce that in ourselves. That is your sovereign work. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to rest and trust Christ alone, and as a result, Lord, to live lives of holiness, but to do so not out of earning something, but as a glad response to the grace you've shown us. Lord, thank you for your love towards sinners like us and the salvation that you have given us through faith in Christ, your Son. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Well,